You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy to see you as we worship the Lord today. And if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. If you are visiting here with us today, we're glad you're here. We have been looking these last several weeks on different means of grace. And these are the spiritual habits and practices that the Lord has given in his word for our spiritual maturation and growth and discipleship. And so we've been thinking through how these means of grace help us to focus our eyes as believers upon Jesus. The last few weeks, we've looked at the means of the word of God and prayer. And today we are going to focus on the means of fasting, of fasting. And to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 and 15 as our focal text this morning. So let's read God's word, and then we'll pray, and we'll begin together. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 and 15. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we long for your return. Lord, you are the bridegroom who has departed for a season, but who will one day come again for your church. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through how this means of grace called fasting accentuates our spiritual hunger and longing for the return of the bridegroom. Father, I pray that you might help us as your people to take up this means of grace so neglected and discarded by the church today and see it as a spiritual tool used by your spirit that matures us and grows us and sanctifies us. Father, of course, I pray for many in this room who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who may not be born again, who do not know yet of the hope they can have in Christ. I, Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, or that you would draw sinners unto yourself and save them for your namesake. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So King Solomon known for his wisdom, said in the book of Ecclesiastes, of making many books, there is no end. A true statement. And I think this proverb is especially true when it comes to diet books, right? Seems like every other month there's this new diet book talking about how we can eat the right thing to to really be healthy. It seems like the the world of fitness and health is constantly coming up with new diets, new fads, new techniques, new nutritional advice that will help us increasingly plump Americans lose 
wait. It's everywhere. We see it everywhere. And even though our bodies really don't change from decade to decade, the constant changing nutritional advice is a bit overwhelming. And I've noticed that in recent years, if you pay attention to these many diet books being published, there's this new thing that people are talking about, which really isn't a new thing. It's an old thing. People are talking more and more about fasting when it comes to the fitness and health industry. I find it a bit ironic and a bit strange that as our world is becoming increasingly secularized, it is corresponding with an increase in traditionally religious practices, things like meditation, which we talked about a few weeks ago, or things like fasting. I think in so many ways, these new trends developing in the secular world highlight that there's this longing for transcendence that looms over the secular age. But you will hear many today in the fitness world talk about things like intermittent fasting, every other day fasting, water fasting, juice fasting, and many more different variations of this practice of fasting. Everybody seems to be talking about fasting. And the question is, is this really fasting? Is it fasting? And the answer simply is, is no. Not in any biblical definition of the term fasting. Because fasting is not a fitness plan or a health strategy, first and foremost. It's not this biblical health plan for calorie restriction. And if we reduce fasting to mere weight loss, we've abandoned the means of grace and we've exchanged it for a means of self-help. Fasting is not about losing weights. Fasting is about stirring our affections for the Lord. It's huge, right? As Donald Whitney said, he said, fasting is more than just the ultimate crash diet for the body. He says it's an abstinence from food for spiritual purpose, for spiritual purpose. Fasting may be a popular dieting trend, but for Christians who would take up this means of grace, it must have a spiritual aim, a spiritual direction, a spiritual telos to the means. In fact, in some ways, the, the telos, the end goal of our spiritual habits is in some ways more important than the habits themselves. Because if we take up fasting, it must it must be driven by a desire for the Lord, personal holiness, asking God for help to continue to run the race in perseverance for his glory. In fact, if we don't desire God wholeheartedly when we take up a practice like fasting, disciplines like fasting can actually have a subversive effect if we take them up with the wrong aims. For example, if you are fasting merely for fitness and health, then your lack of eating will merely reinforce your idolatrous standards for a worldly metric for beauty and appearance. Such worldly aims at fasting actually risk reinforcing the spiritual maladies in our heart, not remedying them. So, as we consider the means of grace in fasting, we're going to look at several passages of scripture, but we're going to focus our conversation around Matthew chapter 9, 
verse 14 and 15. And so here is the, the summary. Fasting is a means of grace that agitates our physical hunger to accentuate our spiritual hunger. I'll say that one more time to give you a second to get it down. Fasting is a means of grace that agitates our physical hunger to accentuate our spiritual hunger. So as we walk through this, we'll kind of do so in in three stages. And let's first and foremost this morning start with the scripture, where we always start when it comes to spiritual practice. Let's consider what the Bible has to say on fasting. So in Matthew chapter 9, what's going on in this chapter in the gospel? Well, we see in verse 14 that Jesus is confronted by the disciples of John the Baptist about why Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. Now, just before they show up in Matthew's gospel we, and raise this issue of fasting, we see that Jesus is at a party with a disciple named Matthew. If you look earlier in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we see that Jesus calls this tax collector to follow him. And in celebration of Jesus' calling to be his disciple, Matthew decides he's going to throw a dinner party, a feast, a celebration. And he invites Jesus, and he invites all of his disciples. Jesus is the honored guest. It seems to be a large gathering, not COVID-friendly at all, right? And there's food, there's a banquet, and we see that there is this huge party, and there's this large gathering, and Jesus ate there with his disciples along, the text says, with many tax collectors and sinners. So you got Jesus and his disciples. You've got Matthew, this tax collector, who invites all of his other tax collector friends and sinners. They're eating together. Now, immediately before the disciples of John show up, we see that the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus' eating habits as well. Disciples of John aren't the only one. The Pharisees are flabbergasted that Jesus would defile himself by associating and feasting with sinners. And so the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, or they actually come up to the disciples first, and they come up to the disciples and they say, why is your teacher, they don't have the courage to go to Jesus directly, do they? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overhears the conversation they're having with his disciples begins to explain why he keeps such company that would be considered taboo in his own generation. Jesus responds in verse 12 and 13. Look at the text in Matthew 9. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus addresses the the concerns of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees' concerns aren't as much that Jesus is eating, but who he is eating with. And then, of course, right after this, in verse 14, Matthew shares with us that the Pharisees aren't the only ones that are having a problem with Jesus' dietary habits. The disciples of John are concerned too, but their concerns are for different reasons. They don't seem as concerned over the company that Jesus keeps, but they're concerned about the actual feasting itself. They're concerned about why Jesus isn't fasting and his disciples. To them, Jesus and his disciples, they seem to be too self-indulgent. 
So much so that it seems unspiritual to the disciples of John that Jesus would attend this banquet of fine foods and wine and feasting. After all, they're followers of John the Baptist, who by far has the most infamous dietary plan in the scriptures of locusts and honey in the wilderness. But here is Jesus, the one whom John said is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, going to this expensive dinner party with fine food and drink thrown by tax collectors nonetheless. So for John's disciples, they see Jesus' lack of fasting as an unspiritual thing. That Jesus is lacking spiritual seriousness, if you will. Why all the feasting? After all, both, both John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Why? That's the question they have. And they come and they ask. And how does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus provides an answer to their question, but also points to how the religious practices like fasting can't just be patched on to the garment of Judaism. They must be reassessed. New wine is meant for new wine skins, and thus the practice of fasting needs to be re-understood in light of the coming of the king and his kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So how does Jesus do this? How does he help us reassess what is the purpose of fasting? What's the aim of fasting? Jesus says that fasting is a temporary practice, a temporary necessity, if you will, only necessary when the bridegroom is absent. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 15 to this question. He says, he, of course, Jesus, the master teacher, responds to their question with a question. And, and so Jesus does that. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see, fasting during Jesus' earthly ministry would be like going to a wedding banquet for your friend, and refusing to, to eat or drink on the occasion. You see, the refusal to celebrate by feasting would actually bring dishonor to the, the couple, to the bridegroom himself. While Jesus is present during his earthly ministry, there is no need for fasting because it's an occasion of feasting, of celebration, of joy that the Messiah has come. The promised bridegroom that Israel had waited for is now here, this is not a time for fasting and yearning and mourning. The Messiah stands before them. Why mourn when God in the flesh is before your very eyes? You see, the proper response is celebration, feasting, joy. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, fasting was a practice that needed to be put on hold for a while. It needed to be paused. We don't need to fast right now. Jesus is here. The Messiah has come. The bridegroom has arrived. But Jesus hints that there will be a day when the bridegroom will be taken away, when he will go away. Thus, fasting is a between-the-time expression of our longing for the day of Christ's return. As we take up the means of fasting, we are communicating our mourning that Jesus is no longer bodily here with us, and we express our desire that he will soon come. He will return. The bridegroom is coming for his church. And at Jesus' return, when Christ comes back, the need for fasting will cease. 
It's a spiritual practice we will no longer have any need for because we will begin the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where the church will be married to her husband Christ for all of eternity. So similar to Jesus' teaching, on here in Matthew chapter 9, you'll remember last week we looked at Matthew chapter 6. In fact, it might be worth just flipping back a couple chapters and looking at Jesus' teaching here on fasting. And this is similar to what Jesus said about prayer last week when we talked about Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus emphasizes that when we fast, that our fasting should not be done in such a way in which we're drawing attention to ourselves. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. He says, we do not fast like the hypocrites who make themselves look gloomy by disfiguring their faces. He goes on and say in verse 18 of Matthew 6, that instead we should try to conceal our fast as much as possible, doing so in secret. And your father who sees in secret, Jesus says, will reward you. So just as with prayer, Jesus isn't forbidding public fasts, and nor is he necessarily restricting that you should never let anybody know that you're doing so. But instead, Jesus tells us that the means of fasting is not a, a tool to try to boost your own spiritual pride. It's not what it's about. It's not trying to impress other people. Fasting is about, first and foremost, pursuing the Lord. So if you decide to spow, uh, decide to fast, you might want to tell your, your spouse about it, right? They probably need to know not to expect you for dinner that evening. And it's not you violating Matthew chapter 6. This is you trying to be a faithful spouse and, and again, making sure that your heart's goal is not to impress your spouse or your family or anyone else around you, but to focus your attention upon Christ. So, again, letting a few people know is not the end of the world, but on the other hand, posting your fast on Facebook or chronicling your, your hunger pangs and experiences on Instagram stories, that's kind of missing the point completely of what fasting is about. So if, you're, if you promote your fast to others, you're not doing it for the Lord at that point. You're doing it for yourself. So when the Bible talks about fasting, the Bible talks about different sorts of fasts. Now, the Bible primarily focuses the word fasting on the abstaining of food for some particular purpose. And there are different types of fasts done in the Bible that we see. Let me give you just a few of them. We see what, uh, what we could call a, a normal fast, a normal fast. And that includes fasting from all food, but not water. And where do we see this from? Well, we see this in Jesus, right? Where he goes out into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days from food, drinking water along the way, but fasting from food. So that might be what we would consider a normal fast, but we also see things like a partial fast, as in the case of the book of Daniel, where you severely limit your diet, but you don't eliminate all food completely. That would be in the case of Daniel eating only vegetables in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. So you have normal fast, you've got a partial fast. You also see occasions of a complete fast, we could say. This is a fasting of both food and water, as in the case of Ezra, who withdrew away for a night, neither eating bread nor drinking, as he mourned the, the faithlessness of Israel, who was in exile. That's in Ezra 10, verse 6. We also see that, that Saul did this as well when he was converted on the road to Damascus. He goes with three days, Acts 9 says, without food or drink. That might be what we consider a complete fast. 
But there's also this other category of what we might call communal fasts. And these were fasts promoted in the Old Testament. The, the one feast celebration that Israel had that mandated fasting was the Day of Atonement, which would happen each year. But we also see other occasions of kind of national or corporate fasting among Israel in Joel chapter 2 or Second Chronicles chapter 20. So we've got normal fast, partial fast, complete fast, communal fast. As you can see, there's different sorts of fasting involving food or drink. Now, when the Bible refers to fasting, it's primarily dealing with the issue of food. However, a question that sometimes people ask is, well, can you fast from other things besides food? Is that a, a biblically warranted thing? So say you want to fast from television or social media or something like that. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones seemed to think so. He, didn't, he seemed to think that fasting didn't have to be limited or confined to food, but he said this. He said, fasting should, be, uh, should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. And, you know, I think Lloyd-Jones is right in terms of rightly recognizing that you can fast from other things besides the food. And I think there's biblical warrant for this. It's not just because Martin Lloyd-Jones said so, right? So we can see uh, that we can and should and sometimes ought to abstain from legitimate activities for a spiritual purpose. Paul actually encourages this in 1 Corinthians, where he, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul cautions husbands and wives from depriving one another in the giving of their bodies. But then Paul says, unless they mutually decide to do so, for a limited time, for the purpose of prayer. There's a, a fasting from the normal conjugal relationship between the husband and wife for the purpose of prayer that Paul seems to permit and encourage for a season. So we can expand, I think, that broader definition of fasting that, in, that can include non-dietary activities. But as Scripture primarily speaks of fasting, it does focus on fasting from food which will be the primary focus as we continue today, thinking about the means of grace called fasting. So now that we've kind of done a quick biblical overview of this spiritual practice, how do we do it? And so let's second consider the practice of fasting. And because this is such a ignored means of grace in the church today, I want to talk a little bit about some of the mechanics of fasting that I hope will be helpful, particularly if the Lord leads you to take up this means of grace, not just this next coming week, but to make it a regular habit in your spiritual life. Most of us eat three meals a day with snacks in between. And so perhaps your stomach is rarely empty. So the thought of fasting a meal, let alone multiple days, that seems like an impossible feat. How in the world do you do that? Well, let me give you a few practical helps if you'd like to take up this means of fasting. First, identify that spiritual purpose. Identify the spiritual purpose for your fast. Remember, fasting is not a health and fitness strategy for the Christian, but it's a physical restraint for a spiritual purpose. Now, in the scriptures, there are many different occasions or causes or spiritual reasons why you may want to take up the fast. Maybe you want to strengthen your prayer, as we'll see prayer and fasting go together in the scriptures. Maybe you have a big decision you need to make, and you are being led by the Lord to fast and consult him with intensity as you seek the Lord's decision on a matter in your life. 
Maybe the, the Lord has convicted you of sin and you are fasting as an act of humility and repentance as you seek the Lord wholeheartedly. Maybe you're, you're burdened for our church or for the kingdom of God or maybe for a particular missionary or country and you want to fast and pray specifically for the cause of Christ in that sp- particular area. Or maybe you just want to express your love and devotion to the Lord, reiterating in your heart that, that God alone is the one I desire, the one I treasure, the one I find my joy in. Whatever the purpose, before you take up a fast, you need to clarify what is the spiritual purpose of this undertaking? Second, specify the length of your fast. Specify the length of your fast. If you first are thought, thinking about taking up this means of grace, it's probably not the best idea to start with a week-long seven-day fast, right? Begin by fasting a meal, maybe fasting for 12 hours, maybe 24 hours. And with more experience, you can consider taking up a lengthier fast that might span several days, maybe a week, perhaps even longer. It is possible to fast and go several weeks, upwards to 40 days, as in the case of Jesus. We have to remind ourselves that Jesus' fast in the wilderness was not a supernatural feat. This is Jesus, in the same humanity as you and I are, going 40 days without food. Christians have done so in the past and continue to do so to this day. Of course, the lengthier the fast is, the more dangerous it is to your health. So do not attempt a lengthier fast without first consulting a medical supervision or getting instructions from your doctor. So specify the length of your fast. You've identified a spiritual purpose, thinking through the length. Third, Know what to expect from your fast. If you've never fasted before, uh, it is a can be a traumatic thing for your body. So here is just some things to keep in mind if you do embark on particularly a lengthier fast. The first three days of a fast can be the most difficult, particularly when it comes to your hunger pangs, because in those first three days, your hunger pangs tend to be the sharpest. When you feel hunger pangs in a fast, it's usually best to drink water and drink lots of it. In fact, drink more water than you think you need because getting dehydrated on a fast is a real challenge when it comes to fasting. But before long, as you drink water, hunger pangs are temporary. They will go away. And so as you make it through those first three days, if you go into a lengthier time, by day four of a fast, you might begin to feel a bit physically weak and tired, a little bit more exhausted. But many who go these lengthier days and fasting will describe that around day six or seven, uh, the body will begin to feel much more stronger and much more alert, even than it normally is while you're eating. And of course, if you go longer than a week, keep in mind that your body will begin to enter into starvation mode around day 21. And so be sure to break your fast between 21 to 40 days. That's a little bit in terms of what to expect in terms of your body. But fourth, what should you do during the fast? Well, you need to devote yourself to those extra times for the means of grace, particularly the means of word and prayer. Fasting creates this posture of the soul that actually intensifies the practices of word and prayer in your life. 
Use the time that you're not eating to take up the word of God. Pray to the Lord. Again, there's a reason why prayer and fasting are so linked together in God's word. John Calvin said, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. So fasting is this means of grace that is sort of like this spiritual pressure cooker for prayer. Right, It intensifies our focus. It accentuates our yearning after the Lord. And so devote yourselves to word and prayer when you take up the practice of fasting. And then fifthly, rejoice in success or failure. Rejoice in success or failure. Remember, remember that your identity in Christ is not determined by your ability to fast. Right? It's not determined by anything that we do. Your spiritual maturity is not measured by how long you can fast or how frequently you fast. Don't let fasting puff you up with pride if you're successful, or don't let fasting failures cause you to cower in shame before the Lord. Fasting isn't a spiritual accomplishment, but it is a physical expression of the soul's yearning after God. And as Christians, we have no mandated fast required of us. We are free in Christ to fast or not to fast. But yet, fasting is a neglected means of grace that can be powerfully used in the life of the believer as God brings his spirit to us and sanctifies us in word and prayer. So as we discuss the practices of fasting, I do want to spend some time thinking through the fruit of fasting the fruit of fasting. So now that we know how to do it, we know what the Bible says about it a little bit. Why might you want to do this? Why might you want to restrict eating for the purpose of godliness? The Lord works in a lot of different ways when it comes to the means of fasting. In fact, it's difficult to describe all the ways seen and unseen that the Lord will work during this time period of fasting in your life. But it does help us grow in Christ. So I want to share with you and highlight for you uh, three ways in particular here that I've seen the Lord use fasting in my own life as, as, a, as a means of grace and encourage you uh, to pursue it, uh, to see some of these spiritual fruits that may come in your life. First and foremost, as I've already alluded to, fasting amplifies prayer and word. Fasting amplifies prayer and word. Uh, Again, the two primary means of grace are word and prayer. And fasting is like throwing gasoline upon the embers of your smoldering spiritual life. Fasting puts our souls in that right frame of heart and posture by which the Spirit of God can use the means of word and prayer more powerfully in your life. Plus, not eating provides lots of extra time to devote yourself to the meditation of scripture, and to the communion of prayer. Everything we've learned these last couple weeks about word and prayer, about the intake of the word, about how to commune with God in prayer, you want to put those into practice during your fast, not only with greater intensity, but greater frequency. And the Lord will amplify those means in your life as you fast. But second, fasting addresses our self-indulgence. Fasting addresses our self-indulgence. Gluttony is the permissible sin in evangelical churches. We live in an abundance of food, so much so that even the poorest Americans have this opulent lifestyle compared to much of 
human history. Not only has food become so accessible in our generation, but we have grocery stores on every block. We've got fast food drive throughs Now you don't even have to leave your house to get food. You can call Uber and they'll deliver it to you. Right? We live in this abundance of food so ubiquitous that the temptation to self-indulgence is very prevalent for us as believers. This means that gluttony has become an increasing problem, not just in America, but in the church. And it's a, pro- it's a problem, a, a sin issue that no one likes to discuss because most of us fear the conviction that would come from the conversation. Jeff Olson defined gluttony as this. He says, it, gluttony is the a moderate consumption of food arising from the unchecked appetite for something more than or other than what the Lord has provided and is therefore judged as sin by God. See, based on that definition of gluttony, gluttony is the desire for more than what the Lord has provided you or something different from which the Lord has provided you. You see, self-indulgence, the sin of gluttony, which is rooted in this idea of self-indulgence, it's this seeking after satisfaction from the stomach rather than from God. I come from the Baptist tradition. I'm the son of a Baptist pastor. And we pride ourselves in our ability to throw covered dish dinners, which by necessity and by ordinance of church tradition mandates that every food there is fried, salty, or sweet, right? Vegetables are banished from such gatherings, right? We love these unhealthy foods. Now, while on the, um, on the one hand, right, we don't want to minimize as we're talking about, there is a place for feasting and celebrating God's provision in these meals together. There's a, a proper and biblical place for that. But the frequency in which we gorge ourselves with food indicates that the occasional feasting has become daily gluttony for many American Christians. You see, the problem with gluttony is not our expanded waistlines, but it's the sin of self-indulgence. As one author put it, he says, gluttony is not wrong because it makes you fat. It's wrong because it's the fruit of self-indulgence. You see, our stomachs testify about who our true God is. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Philippians 3, verse 19, where he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see, gluttony is no light matter. It's no trivial thing. We joke about it. We tease each other about it. But our eating habits often display an idolatrous heart. Many of us have a severe problem of self-control and self-indulgence that indicates that our hearts find satisfaction in the plate rather than the Lord. Enter the means of fasting, which helps us to fight back with with the Lord's help, helps us to fight back against this temptation we have to carnal self-indulgence. When we fast, We are rebuking our flesh. We're rebuking that temptation to self-indulgence. And in our fasting, we are actually preaching to our souls and to our body that no, your greatest need is not for food or calories. It is for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what you need, O soul. That is what you need, O flesh. Fasting is this powerful means by the Spirit that 
the Spirit uses to help get our gaze off of ourself and onto the Lord so that we might behold Him. And thirdly, fasting as a fruit tends to accentuate our spiritual hunger, kind of building off of this second point. Every human person feels spiritual hunger. It's part about what it means to be made in the image of God, to know our Creator, to be in a relationship with Him. That's what you were designed for. That's what we were made to, to know God. But yet as sinful human beings, we have mastered with such skill and deception. We have mastered how to numb our spiritual yearnings with indulgence. Even the good things of earth, the good things like food, even that can be used as a spiritual painkiller to the soul, addressing the symptoms of our defective spiritual lives, but never actually addressing the core root problem. You see, when we fast, our, our physical hunger accentuates our spiritual hunger, meaning that it helps us realize that there's a spiritual hunger that I have in my soul that I'm masking with other things, but it's there, and I need to know it, and I need to find its satisfaction in the Lord. As, as one theologian put it, he said, full stomachs and jaded plates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil, he says, the appetite for God. So do you desire to commune with the Lord in prayer? Do you sense your appetite rumbling for more of God in your life? Do you come to the scriptures hungry, ready to feast on the word of God every day? If not, perhaps, perhaps you have become so self-indulgent that you are masking your hunger for God by constant consumption. Perhaps you are a glutton of information, a news junkie, hungry for the next political controversy which scrolls across the ticker line of the news. Maybe you are a glutton of entertainment, so sucked into the constant input of the social media scroll, video games, or a Netflix binge that any spiritual hunger that you might have is being satiated by the unending distraction. Maybe your gluttony is food. A full fridge and a full stomach throughout the day is your solution to a nagging ache and longing in your soul. It's interesting if a dog is malnourished and has no food, it will often resort to eating dirt to satisfy a churning stomach. You see, we are hungry dogs in the dirt, chewing on the gluttony of information, entertainment, and food to numb our yearning souls. You see, yet when we fast, though, when we take of the means of grace of fasting from our indulgences, something miraculous begins to happen. You see, when we say no to food for a season, when we cut YouTube out of our lives, when we unsubscribe from Netflix, when we delete our favorite news apps from our phones, our spiritual hunger will begin to return. And as spiritually famished as we really are, we will begin to devour word and prayer. Have you stifled your spiritual hunger 
with worldly indulgence. I fear that's a problem even within the church, stifling our spiritual hunger with self-indulgence. Remember what the Apostle John wrote? He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, if you're not a Christian, this might be your recurring strategy. The groaning and the discontentment that you feel, the sort of purposelessness and the meandering spiritual life that you feel, you might be covering it up with every indulgence imaginable. But yet, that longing comes back. You can only chew on dirt, friend, for so long before that hunger comes back stronger than before. You can't cover it up. You see, you were designed by God to find your satisfaction and joy in him. Your heart will be restless until you find your rest in the Lord. And so I plead with you to rest in him today, to repent of finding satisfaction apart from the Lord and to look to Jesus Christ in faith. He alone can make you right with God. He alone has died upon the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be reconciled to, uh, reconciled to God. You were made to know God, to have fellowship with him, and Jesus Christ is the only way to spiritual fullness. His only way. Church, we, we live in this time between the times. Christ has come. He has lived among us. He died and he rose again on the third day. He has now ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, seated next to him. You see, the bridegroom has procured his engagement to his church, and he has now returned home to prepare a place for us. And so now, church, we wait and we yearn for his coming again. We long for him. We anticipate the coming of that great day of the wedding feast of the Lamb between Christ and his church. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 9, he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Church, today is that day. Take up the means of fasting, and in our fasting, May the Spirit do this miraculous work in our heart. May he stir within us a yearning and a longing for the bridegroom's return. A yearning which will grow day after day, week after week, year after year, longing more and more for Christ until he returns. And we are wed to him for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you confessing that we as creatures are often so engrossed by the desires of our flesh that we so often give ourselves to self-indulgence, particularly in this American culture where we pride ourselves on our consumption. Father, help us to see this sinful pattern in our hearts that shouldn't be glossed over or teased about but repented of. 
Father, many of us have areas of gluttony in our life that the means of grace in fasting can often most directly remedy. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people not to neglect this means of grace, but to, Lord, to commit to take it up, or not as a spiritual obligation, but a spiritual privilege.